Hello, and welcome to I Know Dino, the, the Big, Big Dinosaur, Dinosaur Podcast, Podcast, where we cover news, interviews, and discussions of all things dinosaur. Hello, and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today's episode is brought to you by us <laughs> and job. our new store. So if you want to get some sweet I Know Dino merchandise with our logo on it, on a multitude of different options, head over to teespring.com slash stores slash I dash no dash dino dash stores. We're going to have to look into getting a better URL. I don't know. I think that's as good as it gets, but really just get the link from our show notes. It's a lot easier. (laughs) (laughs) This week, we have an interview with Tim Porter, director of new learning resources at Boston Children's Museum. We have Dinosaur of the Day Puertosaurus. And we have a bunch of dinosaur news. But first, we want to give an especially big thank you to some of our Stegosaurus patrons. And this week, we'd like to thank Scotty, Jackson, Megan Dixon, and Eric Keller. Yes, thank you so much. We really appreciate all that you do, and we hope you continue to enjoy our podcast. If you want to join this growing group of people, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Dino. So jumping right into the news, we again have three new dinosaurs because dinosaurs are just coming out in droves. (laughs) The first one is a new ankylosaurine that was described by Victoria Arbor and David Evans in Royal Society Open Science. And thanks to Stuart for sharing this one with us on Facebook. So there's this amazing ankylosaurus, I should say ankylosaur find that was from the Badlands in northern Montana near Haver. It's a pretty small town in the Badlands, as you'd guess. And it's pretty close up to the Canadian border. So there were some researchers that were excavating a scattered Tyrannosaurid. So they were going pretty far away from the bones, trying to find any other pieces they could. And they accidentally excavated part of a tail club of an ankylosaur. So they called in people who would be interested in ankylosaurs, and the first name that comes to mind is probably Victoria Arbor. So (laughs) she came in along with David Evans and some other preparators, and they found this massive upside-down ankylosaur, and they removed it in two huge blocks. So the one that had the skull and the torso of the ankylosaur Weighed more than 15 tons. I think it was like 35,000 pounds. Jeez. So super huge. And then there was a smaller block that they took out that had the tail in it. It's just the one? Yes. It's just one. That's crazy when you think about the Utah Raptor Project and how it's a nine-ton block and there's multiple Utah <laughs> Raptors. Yeah, and Kylosaurs are much bigger than Utah Raptors. <laughs> and those were so compacted in there, whereas this might be a little bit more spread out. mm So far, they've prepared the nearly complete skull with the jaws and teeth, and then part of the tail club, basically like the top half of it. But still left to prepare, they have the neck and back vertebrae, the hips, ribs, osteoderms, skin impressions, possible keratinous sheaths that went over the osteoderms, and then maybe more stuff. They don't really know what's all in there because it's all encased in this huge rock right now. And they say that it's going to take several years to complete at the Royal Ontario Museum. So it's up in Canada being prepared now. That'll be exciting. Yeah, it's going to be awesome when it's done. They named it Zool Creavastator. 
And that's after the monster Zool from Ghostbusters. They thought that the head of Zool looked kind of like an ankylosaur. And so there you go. (laughs) There's your genus name. I know at least one of my coworkers enjoyed that. Yeah. I didn't really grow up watching Ghostbusters. It's pretty funny. Sweet Nicole. (laughs) Yeah. Zool. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Zool's a monster. Yeah. But ankylosaurs are cooler than the Ghostbusters. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, the species name, Creeravastator translates roughly to destroyer of shins. <laughs> that's accurate. Yeah, that's a pretty awesome name for an ankylosaur. And it has this amazingly well-preserved tail club. It's got preserved skin. It's got these bony spikes going down the sides of the handle. And the handle is those fused vertebrae that go just before the bony club. And then it's got a really great tail club knob too. So it just looks awesome, and it's got tendons along it. It looks so cool. (laughs) And then the skull is also in really great shape, especially the left side. And like I mentioned in an earlier episode, since dinosaurs are all bilaterally symmetric, if you have half of the skull perfectly preserved, you know exactly what the other half looked like because it's a mirror image. And Well, mostly. Right? Like how our face, we're not exactly the same. Oh, I guess so. Yeah, there's individual variation. But in terms <laughs> of like species level, you'll be symmetric. Yeah. So on the left side of the skull, you can see all the horns on the entire head. And then you can also see the eyelid, which is obviously like armored skin. It just looks so awesome. And there's some really great paleo art done of it. Yeah, I definitely recommend looking it up. It's estimated that the find is about 75 million years old, which puts it in the late Cretaceous, and it was probably about 6 meters or 20 feet long and weighed about 2.5 tons. The other cool thing about it is they did a digital reconstruction of the skull in 3D, which you can look at online, and the area where it was found has also preserved turtles, crocodiliforms, theropods, hadrosaurids, invertebrates, and plants. So we know a lot about what was around when it was around there. And obviously there was also a tyrannosaur because that's how they discovered this guy. The authors also say it's, quote, the first ankylosaurin skeleton known with a complete skull and tail club, and it is the most complete ankylosaurid ever found in North America, end quote. Nice. So a really, really awesome find. It's pretty similar to Ankylosaurus because it's got that big tail club and it's from the late Cretaceous. It's so cool looking and I can't wait until they finish excavating that 15 ton block and find out what else is preserved inside there. So it's the most complete Ankylosaurid even compared to the next bit of news? Yes. Wow. So as Sabrina is mentioning, there's another Ankylosaur (laughs) This one is a notosaur, so it doesn't have the tail club. And it was recently released by the Royal Tyrrell Museum. They put out a bunch of pictures, and they've also put it in a new exhibit. And thanks to Chris, Joaquin, Kyle, Ampersand Brew, Janice, Brett, and Phil for sharing this with us on Facebook, Twitter, Patreon, email, and Instagram. So this specimen, they're calling, quote, the best preserved armored dinosaur in the world end quote. (laughs) Possibly a loftier goal they're going for there. And although it is better preserved, likely, I mean, it's kind of hard to tell since so much of the other ankylosaur is still buried in this rock. It's definitely not as complete because like I said, they don't have the tail at all. 
But they think the way that it got preserved so well is that it got swept out to sea really quickly and then almost immediately buried and also on its back. Oh. <laughs> so both of these guys kind of like turtles on their back. <laughs> oh, no. Is that, <laughs> is that their undoing? May have contributed. Sure. <laughs> I think it was probably just because they're kind of top heavy sure. with all that bone and weight on the top. But anyway, this one, like I said, is a notosaur, so it doesn't have a tail club. It was found about 250 miles or 400 kilometers northeast of Edmonton, Alberta, and that puts it much closer to the Northwest Territories in Canada than to the U.S. border. And it's significantly farther north than even Grand Prairie, where Sabrina and I went, which felt like driving to the moon. It was so far from everything. Yeah. But a lot of times that's where the good dinosaur discoveries are, because there's, you know, a lot of open space to do some excavating. And in this case, it was discovered in 2011 when a worker at the Suncor Millennium Mine noticed a strange brown circle pattern in a hard piece of rock <laughs> that fell off a cliff. That's great. Yeah. So he stopped working and called over his supervisor, and eventually they called the Royal Tyrrell Museum in to check it out. And it turned out to be cleaved osteoderms that kind of just give this polka dot pattern to the rock. And it's pretty interesting looking. So they spent a couple weeks in the quarry, the Royal Tyrrell Museum, and a whole bunch of people that, you know, generally work in the quarry, helping them to excavate this thing. And they kind of excavated all the way around it until they had this little pedestal looking thing sticking up out of the ground. And then they drilled a couple of tunnels underneath that pedestal-like thing and shoved logs under it. And then they used high-pressure water to blast off underneath it to kind of separate it so now you have this separate chunk and then they hooked it up to a crane and tried to lift it up as one solid piece but unfortunately when they lifted it the block shattered into a whole bunch of pieces and that's all in this video that Suncor put together because they were kind of doing a little documentary of it while they were excavating it and it's like it's heartbreaking when you see this thing break because you're just like oh no <laughs> why but luckily, it kind of broke into large pieces. It didn't just crumble. They're pretty big pieces. And it ended up exposing some preserved tendons and other bits and pieces that they probably wouldn't have seen otherwise. So it wasn't all bad. The dinosaur hasn't been peer-reviewed yet, although they are saying that it's a new genus and species. And there's a fair amount of information in a National Geographic article, as well as a FAQ sheet for the new Grounds for Discovery exhibit, which just opened at the Royal Tyrrell Museum. And they say that it's completely preserved from the snout to the hips. So that's kind of the half of the ankylosaur that they got. And they don't have much of the bottom, although they do have two of the feet. They have the right front foot and the left hind foot, I think. Because of the way it was buried on its yeah, back? Yeah, and I think... It's also just, you know, like maybe not all of it got buried or maybe something managed to eat a little bit of it that was sticking out or mm. something like that. It's always kind of hard to tell. Or it could just be that there are sometimes differences in the geology. So not all of the rock around it was good for fossilization. Part of it might have been in a different type of rock. So that part just rotted away rather than fossilizing. They say it's the oldest known dinosaur from Alberta at 110 to 112 million years old, putting it kind of in the middle of the Cretaceous. 
They also have a huge amount of fossilized skin and osteoderms. And actually, there's so much fossilized skin and osteoderms that it blocks the skeleton from being studied. <laughs> and if you look at pictures of this thing, it is so amazing. And that's why so many people shared this with us, because these pictures are just astonishing. It's got the head, and it literally looks like you know, a taxidermy animal or something. It basically looks like how you'd expect to see an ankylosaur. It's got all of its scutes sticking out in all the right places and the skin impressions and the detail. Like I said, there's even eyelids. Yeah, it just looks like a statue. It's amazing. It's really the coolest looking find I think I've ever seen. I'm not sure. The other one might be better once they get it out of the rock because sure. it's more complete. But this one would be really hard to beat. It's just amazing. Well, National Geographic also has this 3D interactive view, which oh, yeah. is pretty cool. Yeah, it's really great. And you have to do it on a phone, I think. I tried doing it on my computer a couple times. But on, on a phone, you scroll up and it pops up with little graphics and it tells oh. you about what the different spots do. I was able to do that on my laptop. Oh, nice. Just scroll, yeah. Cool. So it would probably work on your computer, too. It's really great. It like spins around and it shows you all these different details and information about it. It's definitely worth looking at. But they really weren't satisfied with just looking at preserved skin because most of what we know about dinosaurs comes from the bones. And unfortunately, CT scans have failed to penetrate through that Aww. fossilized osteoderm kind of structure. Um, I'm thinking they need to get it into a synchrotron and crank up that CT power a couple orders of magnitude, but it might be too big for that because it is huge and heavy and obviously a little bit fragile too that when they lifted it up, it split. You don't want to move it around too much. Mm -hmm. They did manage to do some chemical tests on the skin and from that they believed that it was probably reddish with lighter osteoderms. And I think that might be what the Saurian group was talking about when they said their ankylosaur was the most accurate representation. Because hmm. theirs is pretty reddish and it has lighter colored osteoderms on it. Yeah, but they wouldn't say what about it was more accurate. Sure. So I think they might have gotten some inside hints for their ankylosaurus. They say that the huge block, I think their block weighed about seven tons. So really small potatoes compared to some of these other blocks. <laughs> <laughs> they say that it took about 7,000 hours of preparation time to prepare it. And after about a month, they'd only prepared an area about the size of a piece of paper, which isn't too surprising considering how much detail and how carefully you want to go through an amazing find like this. You don't want to over prepare and accidentally remove some pieces. Yep. On both of its shoulders, it has a 20-inch or half a meter long spike, which just looks amazing. I think that's without a keratin sheath, but it might actually still have the keratin sheath on it because some of the osteoderms still have their keratin sheaths on them, hmm. which is also amazing. We talk all the time about how things like therizinosaurs had these huge claws, but they actually had even bigger claws because they had these keratin sheaths over them like modern animals do. But unfortunately, that's almost never preserved. In this case, it is, because <laughs> why not? It's so well preserved. On the foot, at least one of the feet in the National Geographic tour, they show that there's a foot pad preserved on one of the bottoms of the feet, which is basically that fleshy part that cushions the foot when it's walking. So we oh. can see yeah, a little more detail about what its feet looked like. That's cool. Yeah. And then on top of that, the whole skin has the skin impression, so we can see the scales on the foot itself, as well as most of the rest of the animal. We can see tiny 
hints of some of the bones, so the skin kind of collapsed onto the dinosaur, which we see a lot in these fossilized dinosaurs. The skin tends to kind of fall onto the skeleton. Shrink wraps itself. Yeah, basically. (laughs) I think in this case it happened a little bit less because it has all those osteoderms, and since those kind of preserved, you know, I think that kind of kept a lot more of the structure. But you can see little bits of vertebrae poking up through the back of the osteoderms, and the outline of the shoulder blades are partially visible too. So there's a little bit of the skeleton we can kind of see. And then Sabrina's really going to like this. When the specimen broke apart, they also got a look at the gut contents. Oh, nice. (laughs) They didn't hazard a guess at what it was. They just said they were, quote, pea-sized pieces, and they were going to do some chemical analysis on it to try to figure out what it was. It seems very small. Yeah, but if you imagine it probably had a gizzard, you know, maybe had some gastrolis in there to grind it up. Yeah, that's an amazing find. It doesn't look like it's been peer-reviewed yet, maybe because they couldn't see the skeleton, so it's really hard to compare to other ankylosaurs. You know, it's not like we can compare this amazingly well-preserved skin and scute pattern to other ankylosaurs because it's, you know, one of maybe two that exists like that. So you really need to see the the bones to get a good idea. (laughs) They might be able to do it based on the head because a lot of the taxonomy comes from the skull ornamentation, but we'll have to see. Hopefully they peer review it and give it a really cool name soon. Something on par with Zool. Yeah. In the video that the mining company made, they kept referring to it as the Suncor Ankylosaur. (laughs) Yeah, it kind of rhymes. Yeah. It's not the worst name. I could see them giving them a shout out because the Suncor workers, there were like a dozen of them actually helping to excavate it. And obviously they had a lot of value for the find that they stopped everything to make sure that it got properly excavated. Could be the species name. Yeah. Suncorensis or something. (laughs) Yep. That seems right. So a pretty good week with these two ankylosaur finds. It's about as good as it gets. Well, that's not the only big news. That's true. There is also other news, but this is the most important news. <laughs> I don't know. The other ones are pretty exciting. Yeah. So even though I've already said that it's not as exciting, there is also... <laughs> but it's okay. I disagree. Yeah. This one's pretty cool. It was published in Nature Communications, and it's got a huge team that was working on it from all over the world, really. And it's of this amazing dinosaur embryo which is surrounded by eggs. And you might have seen it before. It's got about five eggs kind of in parallel. And then there's a dinosaur fossil perpendicular that kind of runs across three of those eggs. And it's curled up like it wasn't an egg. The main reason I'm saying that it's not quite as cool is because it was found in Henan, China back in 1992. And it's been in the media since 1996 when it was on the cover of National Geographic in this drawing that's been known as Baby Louie. Unfortunately, the way it got on the cover of National Geographic is that it was imported to the U.S. illegally in 1995, and it kind of moved around to different museums until it finally got repatriated back to China in 2013, and nobody was really going to publish research on it in that time period because you're not allowed to publish on illegal, illegally obtained fossils, so no one was really willing to do a deep dive into it. But this new paper identifies it as a new genus and species. It's called Bebelong sinensis. 
Baby Louie. Yep, exactly. The baby refers to baby of baby Louie. And sinensis, they say, is derived from the Latin referring to its discovery in China. All right. Maybe they did that because, you know, it wasn't in China for so long. I'm not sure. It's a Sainathid, which is basically a subcategory of Oviraptorosaur that includes Gigantoraptor and Anzu. And it's closely related to Gigantoraptor, which, as a reminder, was huge, thus the Giganto, <laughs> at about 1,400 to 3,200 kilograms, or 3,100 to 7,100 pounds. But it's not estimated to be quite as large as Gigantoraptor. They think that the adult would have been about 1,100 kilograms, or 2,400 pounds, which is still pretty big. And it's from a huge egg, which was about 42 centimeters or 16 and a half inches long. <laughs> yeah, that's too big. <laughs> that is ginormous. Yeah. It's about 90 to 100 million years old. And weirdly, it's only about the fourth giant Sainathid skeleton that's ever been found. Despite their eggs being found all over the area, we found way more eggs of this dinosaur than we've actually found skeletons of. It probably has to do with the chemistry of the area, that it just preserves eggs better than fossils or skeletons, but I hope they found more of them. That'd be cool. Yeah, it is really cool. Just not as cool as like a fully preserved half of an ankylosaur. How can you beat that? Baby. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> just want to give a quick thanks to Chris via Twitter and Kevin via Facebook who shared links with us on this story. And last in new dinosaur fossils, there are some fossilized dinosaur tracks that were found in Springtown, Texas, which is about 20 miles northwest of Fort Worth. And they found them on the banks of the Walnut Creek, which is funny because there's a Walnut Creek, California, not far from us, and it kept throwing me off. <laughs> but <laughs> this mother and no daughter... No dinosaur tracks have been found there. No, they haven't, sadly. But this mother and daughter were looking for arrowheads, actually. Going down by rivers is usually a good idea because it kind of exposes some earlier geological periods. Or in the case of humans, I guess, not quite geological timescale, but still earlier times. And while walking there, they stumbled upon these footprints. And the daughter actually immediately recognized them because she's seen dinosaur footprints before. So they contacted... Art Salstein from the Perot Museum, and he gave an interview with some local news and says that the tracks are likely about 110 million years old and are likely made by a family of Acrocanthosaurus. And the reason he says they're likely from a family is that there are five to eight individuals ranging from juvenile to adult based on the print sizes. So it looks like we might have some more gregarious theropods walking around he was pretty <laughs> he was going pretty far out on a limb saying like they went on there just just to have fun and they were having like a dance party <laughs> they were just walking around it didn't look like they were hunting or anything i think it might that might be a little bit of wild speculation but it is definitely interesting that they found this age range of theropod prints i'd like to think of dinosaurs as having a dance party <laughs> yeah and we have seen those scrape markings that are kind of like a dance party. Yeah, the mating dance. Yeah, but uh, these are just regular walking prints, so I don't know about the dance party idea. We don't know what happened. Sure, we don't. <laughs> <laughs> Next, thanks to Chris from Twitter and Chris, different Chris, from Facebook, who shared this one with us. 
BBC has a new documentary out called The Day the Dinosaurs Died, and it looks into the day that the asteroid hit Earth and caused all the non-avian dinosaurs to go extinct. We'll have to see if we can watch that, because that sounds awesome. Yes. Bit tricky with BBC, but yeah, possible, maybe. Maybe possible. <laughs> so the documentary is about the team who drilled into the impact crater, Chicxulub, last year, and Garrett actually spoke with a member of the team. We have an interview. Sean Gulick. Mm-hmm. And the asteroid that hit was about nine miles wide and hit Earth at 40,000 miles per hour. <laughs> the biggest takeaway seems to be that if the asteroid had hit Earth pretty much anywhere else, it might not have been a mass extinction event. And the reason it was so catastrophic is because it hit in shallow waters, which led to its vaporization. There were large amounts of gypsum in the mm. rock, which... That led to a lot of sulfur, 100 billion tons of sulfates, going into the atmosphere, which is similar to a huge volcanic eruption. And that led to a firestorm, and then it also blocked out the sun because sulfate particles reflect light. And that led to a very long global winter. Temperatures were below freezing for about a decade, which makes sense then to have such a mass extinction event. Yeah, we talked about that a little bit in that new paper where they're basically saying it wasn't like a cloud that blocked out the sun. It was these sulfates that caused global cooling and then, you know, just mass death everywhere. Mm -hmm. So that's interesting that they're saying that came from the chemistry of where the meteor hit. I didn't think about that. Yeah. So apparently if the asteroid had hit Earth even 30 seconds earlier or 30 seconds later, it may have hit deep ocean instead of shallow water. And that would have meant that it was mostly seawater that vaporized. Hmm. And Ben Garrett, who presents the documentary with Alice Roberts, said, quote, an impact in the nearby Atlantic or Pacific Oceans would have meant much less vaporized rock, including the deadly gypsum. The cloud would have been less dense and sunlight could still have reached the planet's surface, meaning what happened next might have been avoided, end quote. Hmm. And Alice Roberts also visited a quarry in New Jersey. We've actually talked about this quarry, but there's 25,000 fossil fragments that have been found. And according to Ken Lacavera, they were all in a layer less than 10 centimeters thick, which means that, quote, they died suddenly and were buried quickly. It tells us this is a moment in geological time. That's days, weeks, maybe months. But this is not thousands of years. It's not hundreds of thousands of years. This is essentially an instantaneous event, end quote. Oof. Yeah, to have that kind of far-reaching effect. So. Yeah. On the bright side, had the asteroid hit any earlier or later, mammals may not have risen and we would not be ruling the Earth today. <laughs> so, as I mentioned, the documentary is on BBC. It's BBC Two and available on BBC iPlayer. It's about an hour long and we will try to find a way to watch it. Yeah, we might have to review it or something. Yeah. In other really cool video news... Dr. Michael Pittman, who was the instructor from the recent Dinosaur Ecosystems course, I'm not sure how many of you took it, but it's a really amazing course that the University of Hong Kong put on and covers basically a specific area in the Gobi Desert and the kind of dinosaur fauna that were there at the time. But Dr. Pittman has a new TEDx talk, and it's called Laser Simulated Fluorescence in Paleontology. It's mostly about dinosaurs, not surprising since he's a dinosaur guy. And they're really the most exciting fossils, let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> so he shows how we can use laser simulated fluorescence, also known as LSF, to get feather details from fossils 
and how we use LSF to see slightly beneath the surface of a fossil and potentially you can use that while preparing a fossil to make it a little bit easier because like I was saying earlier when you're preparing you don't want to over prepare and accidentally remove part of the fossil that's important so you end up going really really slowly and cautiously but if you can use LSF to see a little bit into the fossil while you're preparing it or into the matrix I should say then you can avoid gouging into it and maybe go a little bit quicker because you can kind of see what you're getting into. So that's a pretty clever technique. And he also shows his automatic microfossil sorter, which we talked about on the podcast a while ago. It shines a laser light on this series of little pieces of rock. And then there's a video camera watching it to see if it fluoresces, since hmm. fossils usually fluoresce. And then if it does fluoresce, a little puff of air shoots out and it pushes it to the side to be sorted and, you know, like classified later. And then the other little microfossils that I guess aren't fossils, they're just micro pieces of rock <laughs> fall into this other debris pan. And this way you can sort through these little pieces of rock way, way faster than you could by hand. Like I think he said a thousand times faster or something. Wow. It's not super useful for dinosaurs because a lot of the dinosaur fossils we find are a lot bigger. But for things like mammals that were really small at the time, it's very useful because all of the fossils are in these little tiny pieces. So you end up just sorting through these tiny pieces of gravel basically for hours. So all of this stuff he goes through pretty thoroughly with really nice pictures and videos in this TEDx talk that we'll post a link to in case you want to learn some more about this LSF. It's really cool stuff. Next, just a quick announcement that most issues from the Canadian Journal of Earth Sciences, as well as special issues, are available via open access right now. There's 595 issues that were published between 1964 and 2017, and there's 15 special issues dating back from 2011. We'll post links in case you're interested. Nice. Yeah. We love the open access stuff. <laughs> so is that a permanent change or is that just a temporary thing? It's unclear. Oh, okay. So if you're interested in any of these articles, go check them out while they're still available. <laughs> <laughs> there was a CBC News article about Phil Curry, and it talks about how Phil wanted to be a paleontologist in Alberta since he was 12, and now that's what he does, which, nice that he, he does Following what his childhood dreams, dreams. Yeah. yeah. So he's now 68 years old, and he's been part of dinosaur finds and research on all seven continents, and that's not surprising to learn. We see his name on all kinds of papers. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's almost like every other paper has his name on it. His name was one of the names on that Baby Louie paper, actually. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Nice. Apparently, he wrote the original National Geographic article about it back in the mid-90s. Huh. That makes sense, because he's been part of a lot of work in China. And, of course, he's also helped build the Royal Terrell Museum, and he's got the Philip J. Curry Museum in Grand Prairie named after him. He still spends a lot of time in Alberta and for the past 14 years has been working with staff and students in the Danik bone bed, uncovering 15 skeletons. There's Edmontosaurus and Albertosaurus. It's really clear that Phil loves what he does and you get that from basically any article about him and even we've talked to him a few times, you can tell. <laughs> yeah. He said, quote, if I wasn't able to travel anymore to work in these exotic places, it wouldn't matter because here in my own backyard, I have dinosaurs and that's all I need, end quote. What a guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's always great to hear that someone's so passionate about their work. Yeah, I, he inspires a lot of people to do paleontology. Mm -hmm. And he's one of the last kind of generalists about dinosaurs too. Most of the new crop of paleontologists 
have to focus very specifically on one aspect or one subgroup of dinosaurs, but he kind of spans all <laughs> categories and he has so much knowledge about all these dinosaurs. I think that's how he ends up on so many papers because he's just a great guy to run ideas by because he's just has so much experience. And he travels a lot too. Yeah. Next, Montana Standard published a piece about Fort Peck Interpretive Center in Montana. We haven't been there, but visitors to the center and museum can see the Pex Rex, a life-size T-Rex model, as well as other casts and models such as Struthiomimus, and a mold of Wankel T-Rex's skull. Wankel was found around Fort Peck Lake in the late 1980s. The museum's free to see, and there are scavenger hunt handouts for kids to fill in while checking out the museum. So if you're in the area, stop by. Yeah. And if you're looking for more dinosaur centers to visit, uh, Idaho Statesman recommends Wyoming Dinosaur Center in Thermopylae. So the center is getting a makeover, and we've talked about that in a previous episode. But in the meantime, you can still visit, and visitors can dig for dinosaur bones in the Morrison Formation. costs $150 for adults for a dig for a day and $100 for kids. Alternatively, you can pay $10 for just a museum visit or $14.50 for a dig site tour. Hmm. And since the center opened in 1995, more than 10,000 bones have been removed from excavation sites, and there are about 130 dig sites, 20 of which are active. Wow. I know. Then the morning, if you go on this dig for a day, you're out in the field digging, and then the afternoon you practice cleaning the bones with small tools. And the dig for a day, it sounds like it ends with a tour of the museum, so pretty jam-packed there. Yeah, that sounds a lot like the Two Medicine Dinosaur Center dig for a day that we did. Yeah, except they specifically mentioned that they let you play around with their power tools. <laughs> I guess we didn't do that when we were digging, but I think sometimes you do. They said like it kind of depends on your interests and stuff. We were just out excavating in the actual in the nest, nest. Yeah. <laughs> all day, which was a lot of fun. Yeah, I definitely recommend doing a dig at some point. Yeah, it puts things into perspective. <laughs> <laughs> Next, some news in the UK. So Jurassic Kingdom, which has 30 animatronic dinosaurs, was planning on traveling to Bristol, UK, this June, but that event has unfortunately been canceled. On the bright side, for dinosaur fans who live in the area, Jurassic Kingdom is in Birmingham, which is about an hour drive away, at the Birmingham Botanical Gardens, and it'll be there from now until June 4th. Tickets cost £9.5 for kids and £11.5 for adults. Now I've got some news about celebrations. So Granger, Washington is having a Dino in a Day celebration on Saturday, June 3rd. The town has 33 dinosaur statues, which started as a project in 1994 to revitalize their small town. And now they make a new statue every year. That's nice. a pretty cool cr tradition. That's kind of like what we talked about with how the different cities that have like the moose or the wolves or whatever, or the Snoopies. Yeah. Except they do it on an ongoing basis. That's well, and it's a different dinosaur, too. Oh, true, yeah. So they have statues of Myasaur, Apatosaurus, T-Rex, and more. And there's even a map you can download of the statues. The statues are mostly along what they call the Dinosaur Drive. Hmm. So most of them are at Heise Park, which also has a dino store and a public restroom shaped like a volcano. <laughs> Interesting. And Dino in a Day is an annual celebration of the dinosaur statues, and the community gets together to build a new statue. So on June 3rd, they'll be pouring cement for a megalosaurus. Interesting. They're making out of concrete, I guess. Yeah, maybe that's the easiest way to preserve them. Could be. That's what the Crystal Palace dinosaurs are sort of made out of. <laughs> They're kind of an amalgamation of things, but <laughs> concrete's involved, I think. 
Speaking of periodic traditions, hmm. the 19th biannual conference of the Paleontological Society of Southern Africa is coming up. It's going to be in Stellenbosch, I think is how you say it, South Africa, which is near Cape Town from July 5th to the 9th. And it includes quite a few dinosaur papers. They're talking about a lot of different dinosaur print sites. Also, a reconstruction of Massospondylus that's based on CT scans. And most of the work appears to focus on the Elliott Formation that's in South Africa and Lesotho. And included in those papers is a new early sauropodomorph. Ooh. Yeah. I like those sauropodomorphs. Yeah. They're pretty cool. They're almost as cool as sauropods. Almost. <laughs> well, sauropodomorphs technically include sauropods. Well, but... <laughs> Usually people, if they're talking about sauropods, would say sauropods rather than sauropodomorphs. That's exactly. true. Exactly. Yeah. I wonder if they're going to have enough papers to switch this to an annual conference. There are a lot of papers on the list. I know. I saw that list. <laughs> it's a little bit overwhelming. <laughs> <laughs> but if you're in Southern Africa, it seems like a good place to go. Yeah. Very true. It's in like the most Southern part of Southern Africa, though. So if you're not in South Africa, it's probably too far away. Well, if you have a paper, then you're going. I guess so. And there were papers from all over the place. There were some from North America and Canada and Australia and stuff, too. So it's not just limited to Southern Africa. Next in Jersey in the UK, a man was awarded 3,000 pounds after losing his job for a series of issues, one of which included building a model dinosaur while at work. <laughs> <laughs> His boss was very angry at the man for failing to do his work, and then his boss found the model dinosaur and screamed and shouted at the man, which led to a tribunal awarding the man money. Unfortunately, there's no details on what the dinosaur model was, or what it looked like, or how big it was, what it was made of, anything, really. I'd like to think it was a huge concrete model, like the one in Washington. <laughs> I kind of doubt it, but yeah, that'd be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what his job was. He worked at a restaurant. In the kitchen. Oh, yeah. That's not particularly the kind of situation where you're supposed to be making models of things. Maybe it was a model made out of food. That could be. <laughs> Pizzasaurus. <laughs> Next, thanks to Ricardo, who shared this one with us via Facebook. Adweek shared a video called, Do You Think This Practice Belongs to Another Age? to get people talking about bullfighting. So in the video, a velociraptor is in a bullfighting ring and the torero, or matador, taunts and stabs it until it collapses. And the idea is to portray bullfighting as a sport that should no longer exist. The video was created for the Federation of Leagues Against Corita. Corita means bullfighting. Yeah, I know that's always a controversial sport. Mm-hmm. The velociraptor was very well done in the video. Mm. Good effects. As long as you don't mind watching it get slowly stabbed to death, I guess. Well, yeah, there's that. <laughs> in happier news, in Austin, Texas, there's a Jurassic car wash with two coin-operated dinosaurs. So for 75 cents, you can see a T-Rex roar and bob its head and move to side to side and flick its tail. Or you can see a Styracosaurus roar and bob its head or, you know, splurge and see both. For $1.50. Yep. <laughs> There's also a dinosaur that occasionally squirts cars as it enters the car wash. <laughs> it's a carnivore with its head mounted on top of the entrance. <laughs> and the car wash costs between 5 and $10. And every 30 minutes, there's a pterodactyl that comes to life on the roof between 10 a.m. and 7 p.m. <laughs> and you can also see a still velociraptor and its hatching chicks and a dilophosaurus. Apparently, more dinosaurs are being added. So this will be the dinosaur car wash. 
See, at least I'm not trying to do that around our house. I just want a nice little mural. Yeah, I don't think we have the artistic talents for that. I know you keep <laughs> saying murals are easy. I'm, I'm not, not convinced. Up I think you have the abilities. I'm not so sure. <laughs> and last, thanks to Chris who shared this one with us via Facebook. So Chris is the founder and owner of Rent a Dinosaur in the UK. You may remember we interviewed him quite a while ago, but we've shared his work before. Yeah, he sent us a really nice video on our 100th episode. Yeah, he's got Dexter. Mm-hmm the T-Rex. So recently his dinosaur puppets were featured in a children's music video. The song is called the Dinosaur Playground Song and it's a sing-along written by Jazzy Ragbags. In each verse, a dinosaur, there's Rexy, Stig, Trixie, so a T-Rex, Stegosaurus, and Triceratops, are playing on the seesaw alone. (laughs) Then somebody new comes to befriend them. They have a, a lilac elephant, a tiger, and a panther, and then even a girl in a princess dress. And the idea is to encourage friendships as no one is left alone. It's really cute. It's a really catchy song. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll post a link and you can watch it and sing along. And see Dexter in action. No, Dexter's not in it. Who's in it? It's Rexy, Stig, and Trixie. Oh, Rexy is different than Dexter. Yeah, gotcha. they're much smaller because they fit on a seesaw. I was thinking you could probably get like... Dexter on a seesaw, sort of, Maybe. depending on the angle. These these are different kinds of puppets. They're more like plushies. Oh, okay, gotcha. A little bigger than that, more realistic. But. Yeah, I was kind of confused at how you'd get like a Stegosaurus or a Triceratops that's in the same kind of style as Dexter, which is one of those more solid, you know, not inflatable T-Rex. It's a more robust, realistic version. Be a little tricky to get a four-legged version of one of those on a seesaw. I don't know, Chris, maybe that's a challenge. (laughs) (laughs) And before we get into our interview, we want to remind everybody that we have our new merchandise up for sale on the Teespring store, and it has all sorts of good stuff like mugs and clothes and a bag and a onesie. (laughs) Gotta mention that onesie. I really like the onesie. And it's black, so, you know, babies are messy, but the black will help camouflage the stains, so that's good. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Plus, you can help support the podcast at the same time, which is even better, and you get a cool T-Rex on your clothes. All true things. (laughs) Yep. So, if you're interested in getting any of the stuff, head over to the link that's in our show notes. I'm going to stop reading it because it's too ridiculous. (laughs) And now on to our interview with Tim Porter, who is the director of new learning resources at Boston Children's Museum. The Boston Children's Museum recently opened their first dinosaur exhibit, Explorosaurus, which integrates STEAM, science, technology, engineering, art, and math fields, all in one exhibit and teaches visitors all about dinosaurs. And I should mention that Making this exhibit Explorosaurus, they worked with Autodesk a little bit, but I know Dino, our podcast is not affiliated in any way with Autodesk. So thanks for joining us, Tim. Yeah, hi guys. <laughs> <laughs> Sounded like a question, kind of. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. I had something more then. <laughs> That's totally okay. Hey, hi guys. Hey. <laughs> so how did the idea for this exhibit come up? The exhibit actually um, started out with us considering purchasing the, pun intended, bones of an older exhibit (laughs) from a uh, sister institution uh, here in Massachusetts, Ecotarium. They had created an exhibit called Dino Tracks, 
which was uh, a little more narrowly focused on dinosaur trackways and some of the evidence that it provides us, particularly that you can learn some things, some really interesting things about dinosaur behavior by studying and measuring dinosaur trackways, footprints and trackways. And we don't have a lot of uh, dinosaur bones here in Massachusetts uh, and in parts of New England, but what we do have is some of the best preserved dinosaur trackways out in the Connecticut River Valley. Mm -hmm. And so our uh, vice president of exhibits here uh, worked on that exhibit when he was at the Ecotarium years and years ago. And it started a discussion here about dinosaurs, which is one we've had here uh, a number of times. Uh, the, the Children's Museum is, uh, we turn 104 years old this year. So oh, wow. we're no spring chicken, uh, <laughs> relatives of dinosaurs. So, and uh, interestingly, uh, this is interesting to me, at least, uh, in those more than 100 years, we had never created a hands-on exhibit about dinosaurs. Hmm. And this is uh, a little surprising considering the significant role that dinosaurs play in so many young children's lives. Mm -hmm. There are few topics as universally appealing to kids as dinosaurs, beginning at a very young age. And in fact, for a lot of kids, before they've even mastered the alphabet, before they can read, they can still rattle off all these dinosaur species <laughs> a lot better than their parents, right? <laughs> and this fascination with these species of animal is often, for many kids, their very first uh, sometimes obsessive um, entry into interest and engagement in science. Yeah, definitely. I've been at the museum for 25 years, and we have heard the question more than once, why don't we have more dinosaurs in the museum? <laughs> There are a number of reasons why we haven't tackled the topic. I think primarily that we, we really try to focus on really um, active engagement, lots of hands-on activities. We're, we're actually the first museum in the world to have hands-on exhibits to take things out of the cases. And so it's really kind of an important part of who we are. And it's, it's tough to do hands-on paleontology that is at the same time scientifically accurate. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, you see some sort of dinosaur digs in places that are, you know, a lot of fun, but not entirely scientifically accurate. <laughs> um, or you see exhibits that are really cool and scientifically accurate and a lot of, uh, you know, big dinosaurs and, and lots of beautiful real bones and fossils and things that are often behind glass or maybe not as um, as active. So we had some conversations about how we could bridge that gap and create an exhibit that is both authentic, but also really sort of engaging uh, in a hands-on way. We looked at the, the Dinotrax exhibit, um, which was a really cool exhibit that um, that they had at the Ecotarium, and we purchased the, the specimens uh, in the exhibit and a couple of the components, and I would say about 40% of the exhibit probably is revamped versions of, uh, of those old components, and then the rest of the exhibit was new things that we developed inspired by this idea of trying to create an exhibit that felt like us, but covered this topic that's so important to kids. Cool. So I have to offer the, the caveat that I am neither a paleontologist nor an amateur expert on paleontology or dinosaur species or any of that stuff. <laughs> I mean, I have, I have a six-year-old son uh, at home who is very invested in dinosaurs um, <laughs> and has been for a long time. And, and, you know, so my understanding of dinosaurs when we embarked on this project was, you know, just my own personal interest throughout my life and, and um, my, my son's interest in particular. So I was sort of at this interested layperson level. So I could name the the gang of, you know, five or ten hallmark species that most people can rattle off, Stegosaurus, T-Rex, Triceratops, Brachiosaurus. 
all those good guys, but I was <laughs> still kind of a newbie. But what I am is, um, and I think this is the case for most of our exhibit developers and educators here at the museum, is I'm someone who is thoroughly interested in cool things. Mm-hmm. And there aren't a lot of things that are cooler than dinosaurs. So I got to, uh, and the whole team that worked on the exhibit got to dig in and learn about them, which is a really cool part of our job. Um, we became sort of a little bit more expert, um, you know, had to learn how to pronounce coelophysis and and <laughs> learn a little bit about the difference between sauropods and theropods and, and all that good stuff. And as we, as we dug a little farther uh, and the rest of the team dug into all these interesting things we were learning about dinosaurs, it kept coming down to stories and the stories that children tell about dinosaurs, but also the stories that the evidence that exists uh, about dinosaurs tells us. Uh, and the stories that we tell based on uh, that evidence that is available to us. And the cool thing that we got really excited about is that the, that story is constantly evolving. And we think that's an exciting thing for kids, an exciting way to get kids invested in science, that they get to continue to make discoveries, that everything that's known is, is not all that's known. Yeah, that's great. So that was our starting. Well, I have to ask now, how many dinosaurs can your son name? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, more than I can. <laughs> does he correct your pronunciation? Yeah, he absolutely <laughs> does. Since he was three years old, when he couldn't even pronounce his R's yet, he was still, still correcting my pronunciation. <laughs> he's, a, he's a smart little dude. <laughs> he's cool because he's he's sort of dinosaur species agnostic. You know, you, you ask him one week and his favorite dinosaur is Spinosaurus, and the next week it's Pachycephalosaurus. <laughs> Partly because of the "They Might Be Giants" song, but oh um, yeah, so he's an equal opportunity dino lover, and uh, <laughs> I, I am an extension as well. <laughs> nice, that's great. So, can you tell us a little bit about what visitors can expect to see at Explorosaurus? You know, there's a number yeah. of things you can do. Yeah, so you know, we 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 sort of honed in on this idea of the stories that the evidence available to us tell us about dinosaurs and what they may have looked like and what they may have. Uh, how they may have behaved, and no one's ever seen a dinosaur. And that's, you know, that's a pretty amazing fact that I was talking to a colleague here this morning who's gotten really excited about dinosaurs too, and she said, it just blows my mind that we know everything we know from this pile of rocks. <laughs> and so the the core of the exhibit really is about evidence, which is not exactly a topic that's going to drive people to the, to the doors, but, you know, dinosaurs certainly will, but dinosaurs are sort of the context to explore this idea of uh, observing evidence um, and putting all the pieces together and seeing what story the evidence tells us, and then taking it a little farther, starting to develop your own theories. So we do have, you know, I know I said earlier, we're trying to bridge this gap and not have just a lot of like big animatronic dinosaurs, but we have a big animatronic dinosaur. (laughs) You know, you also want to match kids' expectations when they come to see an exhibit about dinosaurs. Sure. Do you want to have in there. We have a probably not quite actual size, but about 16 foot long, seven or eight foot um, tall Dilophosaurus, uh, animatronic Dilophosaurus. And the way that we sort of made it a little more active is that you get to control the movement of the dinosaur. Oh, cool. How do you do that? You know, it being motion sensitive and then it just sort of scares the snot out of you and tries to get you to leave. <laughs> um, you get to make it open its mouth and, and move its arms and, and rear its head and do all that cool stuff. And we added, we had the option of adding a sound to it. And we went back and forth on whether we wanted to put any sound when the dinosaur opened its mouth. Because how would we know what sound a Dilophosaurus made if it made any sound at all, mm-hmm. right? But I found, I found this MP3 of a mating emu. And I thought, well, we can't <laughs> use that. <laughs> so 
it opens its mouth and it kind of goes like a you know a, a <laughs> emu trying to attract a meat does <laughs> oh, that's great that's a really good choice <laughs> fun fact that we didn't uh we didn't put anywhere on the graphics but <laughs> we figured close relative right yeah 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 that's actually a really good choice usually people go with like lions or all sorts of crazy animals but emu is a good choice yeah, so we again we we try to when we can um, we try to stay authentic and as accurate as you can be in an exhibit for young children. I mean, you you really need to kind of take that leap sometimes and do things that are just kind of fun to, for fun's sake mm-hmm. to get them invested and excited about the content. But, um, so we do have the big giant dinosaur, and one of the things that I particularly love uh, around this the, the rail that sort of keeps the kids away from the Dilophosaurus is we contacted a number of artists uh, on DeviantArt, which is just a great source for seeing images of, of dinosaurs that people have kind of invented. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And we a number of artists who had all created very different imaginings of what a Dilophosaurus might really have looked like. Because it's the one, one of the, the things we kept talking about is how we really will never know what a dinosaur really looked like. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. We have our kind of imaginings and we have our, our best guesses based on evidence and you know we think we have a pretty good idea but we found a pretty wide array of illustrations that a number of artists from around the world is one from russia one from germany a couple from the united states and um we contacted all these artists and they were very happy to let us put their illustrations on this railing along uh, along the dilophosaurus and have you know this in front of you very large how it was imagined by this company that makes these dinosaurs and then how these artists imagined it might look. And they, they look pretty different. It's kind of cool. Yeah. I actually noticed the same thing. I did a talk on dinosaurs about a year ago and I did the actually almost the exact same thing. I pulled a couple pictures off TV and art of Dilophosaurus, partly because, you know, a lot of them have the frills and the yeah. spitting venom look to them, which is totally different than, you know, the more realistic scientifically based representations. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We, uh, we, we, that's another one we went back and forth on whether we should include that image because there were a couple of those that were inspired obviously by Jurassic Park. Yeah. I think ultimately we didn't put it on there, but we weren't against it because we said Dilophosaurus as imagined by. So we're not trying to say, you know, one of these is the more correct one. But, yeah. you know, it's interesting how many visitors will see the Dilophosaurus that we have, which looks very different from the Jurassic Park species, which they obviously made smaller with frills and, you know, a regurgitation problem. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm surprised by how many visitors will see it and say, oh, that's the one from Jurassic Park that spit. Oh, wow. And they don't really look that similar. So hmm. people are smart, I guess. Yeah, I guess it's the head crest, but, and also the size. Yeah. It's so much smaller in that movie too. It is, yeah. And ours is, you know, pretty impressive size, at least, um, you know, for the space that it's in. Yeah, bigger than kids for sure. <laughs> yeah. So we do have, we do have another relatively goofy component that is in some ways inspired by Jurassic Park. It's a tiny little component over in a corner, over over on a wall, and we call it the Jurassic Park bench. <laughs> and you, you sit down on it, it just it looks like a seat, you sit down on it, and it starts to rumble and make this sound and vibrate <laughs> as if a dinosaur is coming closer and closer. And <laughs> also, you know, scares a few people, but but it's a, it's a cool cheeky little thing we like to do those surprising little hidden things sometimes so you don't know what's going to happen when you sit on the bench it just starts happening no, you don't yeah it just starts happening. <laughs> that's great you can hear it but it sort of shakes like half the exhibit it's pretty it's pretty cool <laughs> we, we with the idea of how we could put a glass of water oh yeah next that also kind of vibrated but 
we, we, we felt that was a bridge too far. So <laughs> might get uh, some spills. Yeah. Yeah. Well that, and we don't want Steven Spielberg coming to beat us up. So. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see what else we have. The kind of central nugget to the, uh, the Dino Tracks exhibit that was our starting point for this exhibit was about looking at dinosaur footprints and foot size and trackways and, and spacing and how you can not only get a sense um, of how large the animal likely was, but also if you have a trackway using the Alexander formula, you can calculate approximately how fast it was likely traveling at the time, mm-hmm. which is a pretty funky thing. So one of, uh, one of the components has different size feet. There's human shoes and dinosaur footprints. You press a button and there's a projection of how large the dinosaur might have been. So that's um, that's a sort of revamp component from the, the old exhibit. Mm-hmm. We're prototyping a new one that goes along with it that is um, a Brannock device that you can put your foot in, measure your foot, and then it will project how big a dinosaur you would be if you were a dinosaur with that foot size. <laughs> And so the cool thing about that is that as you uh, increase or decrease the calipers on the Brannock device, the dinosaur size, it gets bigger, it gets smaller. And this is to reinforce this idea that, you know, small footprint, probably small dinosaur, big foot, footprint, probably big dinosaur, which for our age level is, you know, sort of a revelation. So, mm-hmm. so that's a fun little activity. That is. Especially when kids, I think, usually think dinosaurs, they think really large creatures. So Yeah, that's true. Right. We like showing them the small ones. We have a little, you know, another new component that we're prototyping has uh, different sized casts of femurs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have a, a T-Rex and an Allosaurus, but we also have a Velociraptor, which is surprisingly small. Also <laughs> Jurassic Park, right? Yep. In the movie. And so we, we have kids measure the femurs and then there's a, uh, a light box that shows how large that dinosaur would have been. And then next to it, we have kids, uh, you can sit down, kids or adults can measure their own femur. <laughs> and then there's a chart next to it that shows how big a dinosaur they would be if their femur size was that size. Um, so again, making this connection to size of the uh, specimen relative to the size of the species, but also making a personal connection because kids are all about themselves. So <laughs> it's important to make personal connections uh, in uh, whenever you can so that the data you're presenting to them matters to them personally. Yeah, that's a really cool idea. The scaling up of their own femur into a dinosaur. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And another kind of cool component we have, is, and the, the thing that I think mo- most of us on the team got most excited about was what dinosaurs looked like when they were alive. What did their skin coloration and what was the texture like? And, you know, we talk about feathers a lot, of course, and scales. And mm-hmm. So one component is a sort of augmented reality uh, component with a coelophysis skeleton. And there's a camera pointing to it, and you have a touchscreen in front of you, and you can see the coelophysis through the camera on the touchscreen. Below the, the screen are a number of different animal textures and, and skin prints. You can put them under another camera and then paint the coelophysis with those different skin textures. Oh, cool. So get a sense of what it might have looked like if it had more alligatory skin or more emu-y skin, and then you can choose different colors too. And this is where we get to the, you know, kids developing their own ideas about, based on the evidence in the exhibit, about what they think a living creature might have looked like. Yeah. That was the one I was most curious about because I saw on the website, it says, paint virtual skin on a dinosaur <laughs> skeleton. Like, what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that does sound crazy out of context. <laughs> Don't you do that all the time? <laughs> <laughs> I wish. <laughs> yeah, right? So... 
you know, along with these higher tech components, we also have lots of really cool real specimens, some of them that you can touch. So we have some dinosaur footprints that you can that kids can actually touch. We have like a three or four pound copper light. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. <laughs> Love these copper lights. Uh, and we have some uh, some trackways that uh, you can look at both from above and from below to see how the, the fossil looks different. Oh, cool. Different perspectives. So yeah, lots of cool stuff. Yeah. I also wanted to ask about Steggy, which is what the, Steggy. yeah, yes. the, what, is it five feet Stegosaurus made out of cardboard? He's, um, boy, he's uh, eight to 10 feet long. Oh, wow. Hmm. So we have a really just wonderful relationship with uh, Autodesk. Uh, they have an office uh, here in Boston and they're down the street and they've been really generous to us and uh, our sponsors of the exhibit. When we were having discussions with them about their sponsorship, we trying to think about ways that we could fold what Autodesk does in with what we're doing for this exhibit. And we started to get really excited about laser cutters because why wouldn't you be excited about laser cutters? <laughs> so we worked with Autodesk and with a local design company called uh, Jaywalk, and they designed uh, this 8 to 10 foot long uh, Stegosaurus model that was uh, laser cut and then sort of pieced together with uh, these sort of slices. And Steggy lives down in our lobby as a sort of welcome to our visitors and getting them excited to come visit the exhibit. <laughs> cool. So we also have hanging in our lobby, laser cut pterodactyl cardboard puzzles put together and they're kind of hanging and flying over visitors' <laughs> heads. Uh, and we also, thanks to Autodesk, have our very own laser cutter now. And we uh, run a program, we try to run it every Friday night and Saturday, where visitors can laser cut small scale chipboard dinosaur puzzles. So they pick their whatever of the five dinosaurs we have to choose from, and then we cut it right there for them, and they take it with them and, and design it and, and take home this cool T-Rex or Brachiosaurus or Triceratops puzzle. They take it home with them. That's so fun. Yeah, so it's been a really sort of wonderful relationship with Autodesk, and it just adds kind of this cool... You know, the thing I, le- I really love about Steggy down in the lobby, mm-hmm. you mentioned uh, STEAM uh, in the beginning, the, uh, science, technology, engineering, art, and math. The reason art is often added in there is because the the, the kinds of skills that scientists and engineers uh, and makers utilize are the same kinds of skills, often just often with different names, that artists use. It's being a good observer. It's using tools. It's manipulating materials. It's um, there's a lot of parallel. Yeah. Uh, for that reason, the, the all those uh, disciplines have been clumped together. And what I love about Steggy is he represents all of the letters of steam. <laughs> Science, because he's a he's a dinosaur. Uh, technology was used um, to create him, and engineering as well. He's a really just beautiful piece of art. There was some measurement happening, so there was some math. So he is kind of the embodiment of how we try to do science, engineering, and art here in the building. And I think that's kind of awesome. Yeah, that's yes. really great. <laughs> it reminds me when I was watching the video of those laser cut, the small scale ones, not the steggy with, I don't know, what does that have? Hundreds of individual yeah. pieces of cardboard. <laughs> uh, the small scale ones remind me of this cookie cutter set we have where you make, it's I think oh, it's a three 3D, pieces yeah. of of a cookie and you stack them up and it looks a lot like those cardboard dinosaurs. <laughs> Doesn't nice. last as long. Where do I get one of those? <laughs> Where are those? I don't remember. Oh, uh, you got them as a gift. You got them. Yeah. I don't mean yours. <laughs> oh. <laughs> we got them as a gift. So I don't remember. Where I think exactly. they're called dino 3d 
If you yeah, if you do Dino 3D cookie cutters, you should be able to find it online. Yeah, they're pretty fun to do. They're not like I mean, cardboard is definitely a better material for this than cookies. That's what I'll <laughs> well, say. But not for eating. True. It's true. <laughs> yeah. Plus, we, we have kids to try, believe me. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> yeah. You well, can decorate them, too, though. We decorated ours with different colors of frosting. That was really fun. Yeah, it was. And then one of them broke apart, so it turned into like a carnivore eating a herbivore uh. situation. <laughs> That sounds awesome. Yeah, it's pretty fun. <laughs> My kids would like that. Yeah, yeah, that'd be a good good activity. Yeah. Definitely. So how long will Explorosaurus be around? It will be here, we think, through the summer of 2018. Nice. Most likely. It's, it's you know, around there. And then we're sending it out on the road. It's, uh, it's going to travel across the country. and um, Oh, send it to California. California. Okay, hold up. <laughs> California. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm sure it'll get out there at some point. Cool. That's great. And after Explorosaurus, are there plans to make any other kind of dinosaur exhibits in the future? Boy, that's a good question. I think, uh, I mean, this one's so awesome. Why would we, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I, we, we, I think we've all caught the bug here. So, I'm sure we'll continue to do dinosaur programming. We certainly will continue to run our, our laser cutter and do the dinosaur puzzles. And it would not surprise me. There's there's no direct plans for it in the future, but uh, stay tuned. Great. For people who, after listening to this, might be interested in visiting the Boston Children's Museum, where can they find more information? Uh, our website is bostonchildrensmuseum.org. And even better, come by and visit. <laughs> <laughs> Come see the place because we are uh, the second oldest and uh, still one of the largest children's museums in the world. And uh, along with dinosaurs, we just have a whole host of amazing things to see. Cool. Sounds great. We'll have to make a trip out there. We have so yes, many you... places we want to <laughs> see. <Yeah. laughs> Maybe we could do that. We're, we keep going back to New York and then not going up to Connecticut and those trackways you were talking about earlier, because going from New York City there seems like so much bigger of a hassle. But going from Boston there actually seems almost easier. So maybe we could do that as a trip. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Great idea. Well, let me know. Let me know. We will. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Yeah, thanks. Absolutely. It was so lovely chatting with you. <laughs> Thanks again, Tim. That was a really great interview. And we really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us about the exhibit. It sounds like a really cool exhibit. Yeah. And if you're in the area, definitely think about stopping by when they're using that laser cutter to make the take-home versions. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> and now on to our dinosaur of the day, Puertosaurus, which was a request from Marie S. via YouTube. So thanks. It was a titanosaur that lived in the late Cretaceous in what is now Patagonia, and the type species is Puertosaurus ruelli. It's named in honor of Pablo Puerta and Santiago Reul, who discovered the specimen in 2001 and helped prepare it. And it was described in 2006 by Fernando Novas and colleagues. They found a neck vertebra, back vertebra, and two tail vertebrae. You tend to find fewer bones of larger animals because they're probably scattered by scavengers and environmental factors such as flood, winds, and storms before the body's buried. Plus, you have to have a massive area that's geologically beneficial for fossilization. <laughs> that too. Lots of factors. Yeah. 
So the back vertebra, though, it's about one meter or 3.6 feet tall and 1.7 meter or 5.6 feet wide. It's the broadest known sauropod vertebra. Mm-hmm. And two thirds of it have these wing-like diapophyses, which support the ribs and merge with the centrum and neural spine to make a wide spade-like shape. Mm-hmm. In other sauropods, the vertebra is not as large and forms a crossbar shape. So Portosaurus is one of the biggest known dinosaurs. It's originally estimated to be about 115 to 131 feet or 35 to 40 meters long and weighed about 80 to 100 metric tons. But now it's thought to be 98 feet or 30 meters long and weigh 50 metric tons, though there's some who think that it might be only 89 feet or 27 meters long and weighing 60 to 70 metric tons. It's that common phenomenon of the shrinking dinosaurs over time. (laughs) Although, yeah, it's interesting to think it might weigh more. Yeah, because that's that whole shrink wrap kind of thing. Mm. How how much meat is hanging off those bones. (laughs) (laughs) So it's not clear if Puertosaurus was one of the longest titanosaurs, but it seems to be similar in size to Argentinosaurus, at least lengthwise. The dorsal vertebra shows that it had a more massive rib cage than Argentinosaurus, so it's possible that Puertosaurus would have been wider. It's similar to titanosaurs in the group Lognacosauria, which are some of the longest, heaviest dinosaurs. So Puertosaurus is related to titanosaurs such as Mendozasaurus. These titanosaurs had more flexible necks than other titanosaurs, so it's possible Puertosaurus could eat a large range of plants without having to walk much. It could easily consume food in one place, so that would have helped it grow and maintain its large size. Before Puertosaurus, scientists thought that the largest titanosaurs in this Lognacosauria group lived earlier in the late Cretaceous, but Puertosaurus was found in early Maastrichtian deposits, which means these large dinosaurs may have lived all the way to the end of the Cretaceous. The latest Cretaceous. Yeah, latest of the latest. (laughs) And our fun fact of the day goes back to Baby Louie. (laughs) Baby Louie. Yep. <laughs> oh, babe. I don't know why that came in my head. Louie Louie. That's one of the first songs I learned on trombone. Huh. Anyway. Fun fact. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Side fun fact. That's not as fun. So the eggs that baby Louie, as well as other similar dinosaurs, came from have been credited to several different species over the years. In the early days, for a while, people thought they might have been tyrannosaurs because they were large and we knew that there were some tyrannosaurs in Asia. Then in the 90s, we thought that they were from therizinosaurs because therizinosaurs were large and they have the right kind of shape for that family of dinosaurs. The weird shape. Yeah. <laughs> kind of long and narrow, Coke can sort of shape. It's Big a gut. scaled way up. Yeah. I was, I was going to describe it as like a rugby ball. They're actually longer than a rugby ball, <laughs> but <laughs> they're, I don't think they're quite as wide. They're a little bit more squished. But anyway, they thought that they might have been therizinosaurs, and that's actually what that drawing of Baby Louie is based on, on the cover of National Geographic. But then in 2007, with the discovery of Gigantoraptor, we saw that, oh, there actually are these Sainathids that could grow to a size that could actually lay this enormous egg. Because before that, we had Oviraptors where it's like that egg is almost as big as the dinosaur. How could it lay that huge thing? So we figured it was probably from these oviraptorosaurs, and now that's confirmed with this recovered embryo and the publication that it is, in fact, an oviraptorosaur. Yeah, it's interesting how how many theories are out there. Yep. 
Yeah, it's really hard to connect some of these things, like the eggs to the skeletons, until you get like this kind of Rosetta Stone type link where they're in the same fossil, and then you can extrapolate that into a bunch of other situations. Yeah. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. And if you want to join our community on Patreon, then check out our page at patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Thanks again, and until next time. Thank you for listening to I Know Dino. If you have any questions or comments about dinosaurs, we'd like to hear from you at plesiosaur at iknowdino.com. And for more information on dinosaurs, go to iknowdino.com or follow us on Google, Facebook, Tumblr, or Twitter at iknowdino.